What's up, guys? It's Little D from FMF. When I'm not mixing gas and hauling ass, I'm listening to Big MX Radio. Hey, guys, what's up? This is Andy Frisella here. You're listening to Big MX Radio. But when you're done with this episode, come check out the MFCEO project, the MFCEO.com. I got all your motivation. I've got everything you need to know about running your brand. I've got everything you need to know about getting shit done, and we can do it together. can't expect that everyone is as passionate about racing as we are. We can't expect that everyone is able to hear the silent call of the sea at 5am. Not everyone possesses the ability to smell the difference between rich and lean. nor the ear to differentiate the bark of two cylinders from four. It would not be fair of us to assume that the world understands the yearning and overwhelming compulsion that we have to push through pain, angst, frustration and failure. Some people might not understand the desire to test physical limits, conquer fear, or to tangle with the forces of gravity and physics. But we don't make product for them. look to the future, but embrace our past. We study, we analyze, we race on Sunday so we can innovate on Monday. We exercise trial and error religiously. through our commitment to the pursuit of perfection. We learn. How to make products for the people that are capable of dedicating everything to sport. Whether there is a championship involved or not. Alpine stars, one goal, one vision.
25 photo here from Grundahl. Kingsley turns that five sideways. Brian McGee is down. This is a sharp left-hander. Who's going to shot? Looks like Darcy Lange on that Richmond Gallon Kawasaki gets the jump. That's where it all started. Big MX Radio, brought to you by Fly Racing USA, is on the air. Fueled by passion, focused on motocross. W Wheels USA, Moto Ice Wrap, Viral Goggle Brand, and Maxima USA make it possible to bring you the news, the interviews, and the point of views inside the sport of motocross. The gate's about to drop on Big MX Radio. Welcome to the Fly Racing Big MX Radio Podcast Show brought to you by FMF Racing. I am your host, Brad Gebhardt, with us on the line, a very special guest, a renaissance man of motocross, an absolute legend in his own right, goes by the name of Ken Fott. Ken, how's it going? It's going really good. How about you, Brad? Hey, not doing too bad whatsoever. Uh, Christmas is, is quickly approaching. December is going to fly by before I know it. Haven't started any of my shopping, but you know what? We're going to throw that off to the side for a bit. We're talking motorcycles. We're talking motocross uh, with a guy who uh, knows quite a bit about it, so I can rest assured knowing that those problems will be there for me tomorrow when I deal with them. <laughs> Perfect. Awesome. Well, uh, uh, thank you for giving me the time today. Uh, I'm really pre- excited to have you here on the Big MX Radio Podcast Show. Uh, it's 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 an absolute honor to have you on, a guy who has, uh, honestly, and I mean this from the bottom of my heart, as a Canadian, uh, we didn't have a lot of live Supercross, and a lot of people didn't have live Supercross, but even getting nationals, you had to either uh, have satellite TV or watch it at someone else's house or, or uh, get, get a video uh, to see the content. And a lot of my friends, as well as myself, fell in love with the sport through photos that you'd see in magazines, a lot of those photos of which were yours. Ah, thanks. You know, what was, what was kind of cool is I actually started when I was 16 years old. That's the first time I ever had photos published in a magazine, and it was actually wow. Dirt Rider. And, um, yeah, I never never thought as a kid, you know, about that as a career, but did that at a young age, made some money, and um, was off to the races, so to speak. Literally, off to the races, uh, covering the sport at, uh, at, at, at a really exciting time, um, seeing the, the full evolution of the motorcycles, the athletes, you name it. Um, like Starting at 16 years old, contributing photos, what, what, what point did you uh, kind of start to uh, have an aptitude for capturing a photo? And uh, keep this in mind, ladies and gentlemen, this is film uh, time. Uh, it's to, film era of, of photography, most likely many a rolls of Fuji Chrome rolling around your house somewhere. <laughs> no, no doubt. I still actually have some on a, on a shelf that reminds me of, of where I came from. But my first time I ever, ever shot photos for a magazine was in 1985, and it was with Ricky Johnson and Ron Lachine um, for Dirt Runner magazine and a guy named Carl Kramer. Um, <clears throat> I did that as a freelancer. I worked at Cycle News. Um, for a while as a freelancer. And then um, my last year, right after high school, I was 17 and a half, and started working at Cycle News. So I worked um, there in-house for five and a half years, and I was lucky. I got to travel to Europe. I got to go to nationals all over the United States. Um, I got to interview the top guys there. And um, it was at a a really young age that I thought, you know, I want to see if I can make something of this. I want to see if I could do a career. 
And um, it just, at, at that time, there was only a handful of journalists. It's not like it is now where you have, you know, anybody with a camera and access to the Internet or a, an iPhone. You know, they can go and, and interview anybody. I mean, literally, there was like a dozen motocross journalists in the United States. And um, it was pretty cool. It, looking back on it, I was very, very fortunate to get my foot in the door and, and um, be able to, to do this for the last, um, you know, 30 years or so. No kidding. Now, what's the connection with Dirt Rider? Giving, uh, getting an opportunity like that to take photos of, uh, of, of the dogger, Ron Lachine, two hip, uh, Rick Johnson. These guys were, uh, kind of, they're, they're the who's who at the time. Uh, especially I believe that year was the year that, uh, that, that Ronnie won his, uh, his, his 125 championship. Uh, how, how did that, uh, how, how did that come about that you even had that connection to start having those public, those pictures published? Because, uh, uh, as any photographer would know, it's easy to take a photo or maybe not, maybe it's not easy to take a photo, but you can get a great photo. It's another, uh, thing altogether to actually get that photo where people can see it. Yeah, it, I actually started out as a kid, as a test rider for Dirt Rider. And um, I met Carl Kramer at when I was about 14 or 15 years old. Um, I was uh, racing what used to be called the CMC Golden State Nationals back at that time and met Carl. Um, we became friends. He started using me as a photo model and test rider for the magazine. So I did that. And then he said, he, one day I was at, at high school and I get called to the attendance office and I was pretty much a good kid. Um, and I was, I was wondering what the heck was going on. And it was a note from my mom saying Carl was picking me up from school, which she had never done and taking me down to San Diego. And that was about an hour and a half drive. And we were going to go um, shoot photos of Ricky Johnson, Ron Lachine. So Carl handed me a camera, didn't have any expectations and, and didn't know that that's actually one of my hobbies. So he handed me camera, a lot of free film. I shot a lot of, a lot of stuff. And, um, next thing you know, he surprised me and he said, Hey, we're running a bunch of your photos. And, and, um, I remember, remember it was exactly 17 photos because I got $25 a piece. I made 425 bucks in a day. And at that time, I just started working for a Yamaha dealership, um, in Orange County, California. And, um, I was making four bucks an hour. Yeah. So 425 bucks in a day, thought about that could be a lot of fun. And especially when you're shooting, you know, the absolute top guys at the time, yeah. that photo shoot just happened to be with Ricky Johnson switching to Honda and Ron Lachine, Ron Lachine switching to Kawasaki. So okay. um, it was, it was, it was a big deal. You know, and when you're, when you're a kid and you're out with the top riders in the world, you know, and they're giving you a lot of respect, um, you know, it's, it's something that opens your eyes to the world. Absolutely, and it's kind of interesting that he had uh, your your skills with the camera completely unbeknownst to him, and uh, sort of uh, Mr. Kramer almost uh, uncovering a diamond in the rough, so to speak, uh, in giving you that opportunity and uh, your ability to just run with it um, is pretty pretty remarkable to say the least. Um, when you when these, uh, I, I'm sure, I guess at the time, uh, Rick Johnson wouldn't have been a whole lot much older than you, he probably would have been uh, in his early, early 20s. But uh, did you, like, what, what was the reaction from from the athletes to see such a young so young person uh, taking those photos and uh, seemingly knowing what they're doing with uh, with, a, with a camera in hand? Um, Rick, who's actually now a pretty good friend of mine and an investor in a, a silicone ring company that we, we have called Fixate Designs, 
anyway, we're good friends. But at that time, um, they treated me with a lot of respect. I had I'd met them in the past and that was lucky enough to be able to, um, you know, do a little bit of writing and stuff with them. So um, they made it really easy and really comfortable, you know, to be able to go out there and, and um, work. Right on. Well, that, that's that's awesome to hear. Like, it just if you get that opportunity and run with it, it's like uh, uh, those those do not come uh, to everybody, and they certainly don't come on a regular basis. Uh, what were you shooting with at the time? Maybe so there's some uh, some uh, some people around your age that are that are watching or listening right now that uh, might have had a similar camera, similar uh, vintage, and that you, you'd mentioned that it was a hobby. Did you have a camera of your own to get started with? <clears throat> I did. I had my dad's Yashica at the house, but since I was at school and I had no idea what was going on, Carl lent me a lot of his Pentax cameras. And anyway, he had had a couple camera bodies and some extra, and he was the primary photographer, and he just gave me some cameras so I can kind of fit in, you know, so I wasn't out of place and um, made it a lot of fun. And, and in fact, Carl was really instrumental in my career. Um, I was at Ascot Park um, right around, I think it was 1986, and we were with Stu Peters, who ran the Continental Motorsport Club. And at that time, it was kind of the had the warm up series that would lead in right before you had the the Supercross series. So anyway, Stu asked Carl if he could write some freelance stories for Cycle News, and he said, "No, I can't. It's a conflict of interest." But he said, "I could. Ken could," and he volunteered me, and I was horrified. I mean, I'm I'm sitting there thinking. You know, I'm I'm just an average kid in school, and now i got to write some stories. And um, next thing you know, that led me covering bigger races and then um, traveling to places like Houston as a freelancer. And, man, when you're a kid, that just blows you away that somebody gives you that much responsibility. Totally, and and, and it, w- it was a pretty involved process to get some of those. Like, if you're you're out out in a national to get that story back to Cycle News, which at the time was a is, is a weekly periodical, that uh, um, to get those stories back to where they needed to be, like uh, that involved uh, staying up late after a race, getting uh, getting everything uh, edited and uh, down to a finished copy, and then uh, I, I I assume there's probably uh, like um, like like either sending it back via air, like there's, there's a a lot involved with doing that. Well, here's how it worked. Let's say we were going to a national, like in Southwick and we were based in Southern California in a place called Long Beach. We'd fly to the race on Saturday. We'd go there on Sunday, get our press credentials and everything. And we were allowed five rolls of black and white film. And because that's what the newspaper was mostly printed in. And then we would take, if it was a big race, something that was more important than road racing or other big races that were happening on the same weekend that other staff members covered, we'd take one roll of color. So you had 36 shots to be able to get a cover if if they needed it. And you think about that, you really got to think about who won the first moto and start doing the math in your head and try to figure out, all right, um, who's in the hunt for this, you know, and who could who's really going to be the, the guys that, you're going to want to do and it it wasn't the cost of the film the problem was it was the time it took to develop the film right so we had our own in-house laboratory that did black and white but we had to take our color someplace else so let's say the race ended you know at five o'clock on a sunday you would try to get the last flight out you'd have to sit around and wait for the ama to finish you know producing the results manually then it have to photocopy them for you 
that have to give them to you. You'd have to interview the writers, you know, with a little mini DV, you know, or, or cassette tape recorder. And then you'd get on the plane and you would use a Tandy 100 Radio Shack computer that its entire storage was 12, 12,000 bytes. So 12K, that was it. Nothing. I mean, literally nothing. You had 12,000 characters. So you would take that, then you would, you would write the story in the plane, and the monitor on this thing only had eight lines. Eight lines that you could see. So you're constantly trying to scroll, and, and it was, it was black and white, it was LED, so it was horrible to see. And you're trying to do this on, write stories on flights while people are sleeping. You're trying to type in the results, you're trying to, listen to your cassette recorder of your interviews, you know, and, and stuff. And then yeah. you'd wind up being in Long Beach, Long Beach the next day at 8 a.m. And then you would hand the film in, did start processing the black and white. Somebody would, if you were lucky, you'd get another staffer to go get your color film developed at a, at a place that they already had a contract with. And then by one o'clock, the, the entire stuff had to be edited, laid out. And then at four o'clock, it went to the printer. And this is back in the days where everything had to be laid down on what's called boards. It wasn't designed on a computer. They had to do manual typesetting. The photos were physically printed in a system called halftones. And from there, um, they were laid down. And the whole magazine, or the whole newspaper, was put up on one wall. So the editors would stand there and, and start editing and looking for mistakes. And um, looking back at it, it was a pretty incredible process. Um, you know, before we had computers, and then I was lucky. Um, I was I was um, still working at Cycle News um, right when computers, you know, started coming more more into design work. And then I was working at at Dirt Rider Magazine when we started using digital cameras, and and of course that changed everything. Totally. Nowadays, um, you get a guy go out to the if they got a, de- a big memory card and, and uh, so a, a, a liquid fast shutter speed, you could just hold down the the trigger button all day long, hoping that you find some gold. But then, uh, back back when you started, you really had to be an artist as far as uh, the the lighting, the timing, uh, and like you said, finding like taking a photo of the the right athlete to because uh, if, if they had the chance at the at an overall or uh, or a supercross win. Like a lot of times when when I'm at a, at a race, if I'm looking to try and get a shot, like say uh, Eli Tomac just went by, um, like one of the back markers, I'll try that same shot with uh, with with a guy that's either getting lapped or someone in the middle of the pack, so that I can kind of see what that's going to look like. So that I kind of learn by the time that if if by the time Tomac comes back around again, I know how to grab that shot. Uh, you didn't have that that luxury when when it was full when it was full film, and uh, I don't think not, that's pe- people that people realize anymore. Yeah, not even close. I mean, we didn't we didn't know what was going on until we got back and produced the you know had the film developed. In fact, I wound up um, shooting a supercross one time, and I had half of my film that was pretty much destroyed. I had a, a shutter break. So there was a p- piece of the shutter that was blocking the actual um, view- viewer inside where you can't physically see it. So all my photos had this line across them. Um, and I was lucky. I always used two camera bodies because I knew if something failed, I had to have a redundant system. Um, but anyway, it was, you, it was a gamble, you know, and, and you really had to learn how to be precise and, 
know how to how to make really good photos. And um, on the positive side, once I went to Dirt Rider, it was a huge company. At, when when they finally sold, I think they had seven thousand employees and two hundred forty eight magazines. They did like Motor Trend and Hot Rod, and they did about one point seven one point seven billion dollars in business. And when I go to a, a national, now I was shooting like fifteen hundred dollars worth of film because now it was about $25 for film and processing for one role and they had big budgets. So then I could, you know, and I didn't have the immediate deadline. So that, that seemed like such a big luxury to be able to go out there and to shoot an awful lot. And, um, I look at, at one time I tried to figure out how much money in film I shot during my dirt rider days. And it was probably three to $400,000 worth, you know, to be able to, to, to get to that level where I was at nowadays, somebody with a digital camera, um, once they buy the camera, it's just memory cards. It is, they have such a huge advantage over what we had back then. Absolutely. No, and, uh, and this little thing called Lightroom, uh, that definitely helps <laughs> out as well. Um, but, uh, you, you were there and you've been there. You still, I'm sure you still take photos, uh, on a regular basis now with uh, some of the, the newer cameras that are out. You, you've been around for the entire, uh, evolution and, the, and things continue to evolve with, with photography. Um, when did you feel like you had kind of, uh, reached I wouldn't say your potential, but like you really got into the zone of being able to go out there and uh, and find the good lighting and find the good angle and, and know when to take those good photos, not just uh, lining yourself up at the Buckley berm and uh, and, and letting things fly. <laughs> yeah, the Buckley berm Southwick. Um, it was probably about maybe 1995 in that era um, where I really got comfortable and I really got confident with everything. And, uh, when I knew I could, I could take more risks with my photography and I could, I could get better stuff and, and photography, it's, it's all about trying to do things that other people don't do and using lighting and controlling that. So, um, that was right around the time that I felt really comfortable. And then, you know, we started playing around with, um, with digital in a very unique, um, structure. Our company was big enough that they were able to partner with, with Canon and Kodak, who made one of the first professional digital cameras, it ended up retail costing about $26,000, and it was only 1.4 megabytes. I mean, your iPhone is like 10 times more powerful than this thing was, and it did not even have that preview around the back. So it was kind of like shooting film. And, um, you know, but it was neat because we did get to see that evolution and watch that and at first digital wasn't good enough to be able to use for magazines we just shoot it to help canon and kodak you know knowing that in the future that we were going to be able to do it so i was lucky enough to be one of the beta testers you know during that time for sure yeah actually a lot of the the like the early early uh, digital cameras and i know my dad had a canon d30 uh a 30d rather and um the 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 quality of photos coming out of that thing like you really had to be able to adjust that camera to make to make good photos with it uh but i found them like to, especially uh even though we had a half decent lens on it i think it had a, a 200 lens on it things things came out very grainy and uh it was dif- difficult to take an absolutely lights out photo with those early uh digital cameras yeah exactly and even even like film we would push the limits of film when we were shooting Supercross. You know, it just they, the film wasn't that great. It was it was also really grainy, and it didn't have a lot of, you know, bright colors and stuff. 
And nowadays, you can go to um, super fast races, most of them, and you can shoot without even using a flash. And before then, we were shooting with basically wedding photographer type setups. We had these really big flashes that were about a foot and a half above the camera and it had this really big bulb. They're really bulky battery packs that, you know, you would, you would wear. And, um, you know, and, and we were limited on how much we could um, carry on the plane because we were always nervous time-wise to be able to check bags in, you know. So you, you literally just carried a very light change of clothes, you know, toiletry items, and then the rest of it was your computer and your, your camera stuff, all of which you carried everywhere you went. Boom. Yeah, absolutely. You guys had uh, um, a, a, a totally different uh, set of tools to go to the races with. I can't even imagine now. Um, like, At what point uh, did you start to uh, um, kind of your, your skills with the written word start to match your skills behind the camera? I think it's probably around the same time. Uh, okay. I, wound, I wound up working for um, going to work for Dirt Runner Magazine in 1991. One and I worked there for 12 and a half years. I was basically an associate editor. I was in charge of a section called Moto, and I was the Moto editor there. But I worked for a guy named Tom Webb. And with that, Tom was um, the editor for about five years, and then he wound up becoming the editorial director of the magazine. And when he became editorial director of the magazine, um, they promoted me to become editor-in-chief. And um, that was that was pretty fun because at the time dirt rudder had the largest circulation of all the motocross magazines in the world it was about 230 to 240,000 and there wasn't motocross action there wasn't or i'm sorry there wasn't transworld motocross or racer x it was just motocross action and dirt bike and dirt bike was like 100,000 circulation and motocross action was like 80,000 circulation so we were two to three times larger by circulation than the other ones, you know, so it was, it was pretty, pretty fun to be in that position at a, a relatively young age. For sure. And, and, uh, there's, <clears throat> there's a, a lot of, um, different, different companies and in, and, uh, uh, brands within motocross that <clears throat> when you think of a specific, specific brand, you think of a, a certain person uh, or a representative. And uh, honestly, to me, um, I can't think Dirt Rider without thinking Ken Fott. And I think that that goes along with a lot of other people who think the same way. And uh, to be so synonymous with an, an iconic brand and an iconic uh, uh, publication like that must have been uh, a huge point of pride for you as you worked forward and uh, continued to grow with it. Uh, it, it was a huge, huge sort of sense of pride. And one of the, it's one of the things that helped me, you know, when I started pole position raceway is that we had the credibility. People knew that I didn't, you know, change positions. Um, I tried to really have a good work ethic and I enjoyed the travel. I respected other people in the industry. Um, I was able to, to do a lot of riding and I was able to ride, um, all over the world. And, um, you know, with that, working for a large company, we also had two TV shows for the course of three years. So I got to go to places like Australia, New Zealand, Costa Rica, Peru, Zimbabwe, um, and I got to take on some of these trips, guys like Jeremy McGrath and Greg Albertine, and, and it built a lot of credibility, and it made it an awful lot of fun. And even other people from other other aspects of the sport, like Nikki Hayden, 
um, I'd meet him and he's like, yeah, I've watched your show for a year and a half. It's, it's fun. And, and that was, that was really cool. It really meant a lot to me, you know, at that time. Absolutely. And, uh, I, I won't go a second further without mentioning, and I talked to the, about this with, uh, with Garth Mylan, uh, when I, when I first met him, <laughs> and I'm, pro- I'm sure I, I totally, I, I, I creeped him right out when I brought it up, but I watch old supercrosses like they happened yesterday. Uh, my girlfriend will be a test of that, but, uh, uh, a specific trip where you go to Hawaii with Greg Albertine and Garth Milan and, uh, and, and Greg's taking photos. I'm sure you didn't use half of the ones that he took in that particular day, but uh, take us through that particular trip because that seemed like a pretty special, uh, event. Yeah. What's, what's interesting is, I actually met Garth through his mom when I was signing up for the Lake Elsinore Grand Prix. And I had known his mom for a long time and, and I didn't know anything about Garth. And, um, she said, yeah, my son shoots photos. I'd love for you to meet him. So I met Garth and we started working together and, um, I hired him for a lot of different projects and ultimately he became a premier shooter for, um, Red Bull and, um, really impressed with what the guy's been able to do with his career. But, um, Greg Albertine had just won the 1999 national championship and he, he was the guy, he was the outdoor guy. And, and I was lucky that I was really close friends with him and I said, Hey, let's go, let's go to Hawaii, you know, and, and do a TV show and, um, talked him into it. And, um, my father-in-law was head of Suzuki in the United States. So he helped arrange one of the first four stroke off road bikes, um, and their DR 400 line to be able to ship shift over to Kauai. And um, we wound up going there with Dave Despain, who's one of the most notable um, automotive journalists on, on TV. So we took Dave over there and uh, had Garth go over there for photos. And it was a blast. I mean, we, we had a lot of fun. In fact, to this day, I'm, I'm still friends with a lot of the people that we met over there. And I just, I went riding in Kauai um, three weeks ago in the same area um, that I took um, Albie riding. And then, I took Albie back there about five years later um, with McGrath, and we did it for a whole different TV show, and um, just just had an absolutely great time. But Garth Milan, I'm I'm blown away at what the guy's able to do now. I mean, he's he's he is one of the premier shooters out there, um, and so much respect for his creative eye. Absolutely, the the. It- Never ceases to amaze me what that guy's able to come up with as far as, uh, just a thought-provoking photo. They say a, a picture says a thousand words. Some of his has gotta, gotta say, uh, over a million because, um, <clears throat> and you, you'd know as well as I would going to, a supercross, uh, you get, when you get your little photo credential, you also get, uh, a map on the back of it as to where you're allowed to stand to w- take those photos. And typically you're not going to be too far away from someone else who's taking photos. And, uh, that, that usually means that your photos aren't going to look a whole lot different from the one person sitting next to you unless, you, unless you're, you're going to be able to get, get creative with it. And that's one of the things that Garth is really good at is, uh, taking those opportunities, maximizing them and getting that thought provoking photo that, uh, is really difficult to do in the uh, in the friendly confines of a supercross uh, uh stadium because uh you just you just can't walk wherever you want to you have that little green area that you're allowed to stand in and uh i don't know if there's too many guys that occupy that green area as well as as uh as garth does <laughs> you know what, what's interesting is garth is one of the best guys at working at that and that's actually one of the negative things about all the journalists um with the internet and with digital photography 
when we used to shoot, you know, in the 90s and, and you know, around 2000, year 2000, didn't have digital cameras, so you only had a few professional photographers. So um, what they did, the promoters, they gave five of us all-access passes. So we didn't have to, we didn't have these little areas and stuff. So that was one of the negative things as the Internet came about and you had more websites and everything else, you know, coming, coming you know, online and more people were asking for credentials, all of a sudden it started getting more and more restrictive and it became harder and harder to shoot unique photos, you know, and that's, that's where, you know, buying expensive long lenses and, you know, different flashes and all these other different things really comes into play. And um, it was funny, a couple, a couple of years ago, I was learning how to do this special technique called hypersync. And I really wanted to learn all about it. And something Simon Cudby and Garth were masters at. So I go and start doing a lot of internet research, and there's a whole bunch of stuff from Garth Mylan on the company's website because he is one of the guys that helped them perfect this technique. So I'm calling Garth, a guy I taught how to do a bunch of things in photography, to ask him if he would please teach me you know, how to do this stuff. And I loved it. I thought, man, this is, this is, this is neat, you know, to be able to see just how, how much a guy like that is, has moved. And, um, and another guy that was like Garth, you know, that, that we worked with, both Garth and I did, was Don Maeda Transworld. Um, Don followed me when I worked at Cycle News, and then when I went to Dirt Rider, um, he wound up coming over there a couple of years later, and it was neat to watch his evolution, you know, and then build Transworld right from scratch. And, um, you know, his his photos are, are stunning, and, and what the guy's able to do now with video, you know, and, and uh, different... Um, movies and stuff that they wind up producing in Transworld. You know, I've, I've got a lot of respect for these guys. Pretty flat proud to play some type of a role in their careers. Hey, everyone. Let's take a break and listen to some commercials quickly. Then we'll be right back to the podcast. Thanks for listening. FlyRacing.com is the home of quality and innovation. The design team at Fly tirelessly rebuild and retool premium lines like the Evolution 2.0 and Light Hydrogen with features like zipper lock to prevent closure failures and EVO's BOA technology, which ensures the perfect fit. Complete your protective gear combo head-to-toe with Fly Racing F2 Carbon MIPS Retrospect and Fly's entry into the premium boot segment with their sector. All products and colorways are available at FlyRacing.com. In motorsports, the action pulls us in, and often we never get close enough to the exhilaration and athletes that amaze us. Although trackside seats are available, nothing gets you closer to motocross and supercross action than the collective experience. Dave Drakes has created an exclusive opportunity to get you closer to the sport you love so much. If you want an all-access experience with Adam or Tyler Entick-Knapp, Henry Miller, John Ames, or even the cat, AJ Catanzaro, you need to check out the collective experience today. TheCollectiveXP.com, as well as TheCollectiveEX on Instagram, is where you can find the collective experience. Do so immediately. The collective experience. Nobody gets you closer. What's wrong, Jeff? I don't know, Jay. Well... You better fuel up with a nutritious breakfast with oats and bran. Oats and bran? I didn't think there was such a thing. That's what I used to think. Now, I start out every morning with a bowl of Amigos. For extreme kids like us. 
That's what I call fueling for the big ride. Hey, kids, start out every morning with a fat ball. Hey, this is Zach Cummins. All you hosers, quit listening to Nickelback and jump on over to the Big MX Radio Show. Hey, Big MX listeners, it's time for another commercial break. Please listen carefully to these, and we'll be right back to the show. Thanks. WUSA is your one-stop shop for quality wheel sets in America. All of the best components built for the toughest conditions. Hit up WUSA.com, that's D-U-B-Y-A-U-S-A.com right now, and check out the custom wheel builder selection. Pick your rims, pick your hubs, pick your spokes, even pick your nipples, and see what it's going to look like on your bike. On the website, you'll drool over components like XL and DID rims, Talon and Kite aluminum hubs, Galfer and Brembo brakes, and spokes that take a licking and keep on ticking. The same wheels that you buy are built by the same guys we're building wheels for. Ryan Dungey, Jeremy Martin, Chad Reed, and the entire Geico Honda team. And I kid you not, if they are not told whose wheels are whose, they just build amazing product. And I want you guys in a set of W wheels. So do what I did and head to dubyausa.com today. WUSA. All things wheels. Hey, Big MX fans. Thanks for listening to this podcast and hope you're enjoying it. I want you guys to head on over to TractionMX.com. TractionMX is the place to get your seat covers for any bike that you have, whether it be a Husqvarna, Kawasaki, Suzuki, Yamaha, KTM, you name it, these guys have a great seat cover for you. They're durable, they're flashy, they're eye-catching, and they're one-of-a-kind. The reason why they're one-of-a-kind is because you design your own. You pick the fabrics, you pick the ribs, you pick the everything all the way down to the stitching uh, color that they use on the seat cover itself. Traction MX is your one-stop shop to set your bike apart from the herd 110%. These seat covers start at just $69.95 American, and uh, the average turnaround is a one to two weeks. One to two weeks from now, you could have a bike that's looking completely different than it does right now. So head on over to TractionMX.com, start shopping, start designing, and make something special like for you today. Going viral with Viral Brand. Viral Brand is setting its sights on being one of the leading brands in the extreme sports market. From supercross to snowcross and snowboarding and everything in between. Viral Brand is working hard to not only bring you premium products, quality eyewear, and killer style, but award-winning support with every sport. Head on over to theviralbrand.com and get tinted lenses, clear lenses, 10-pack of tear-offs, and goggle bag for only $59.99. Viral Brand products are available in the U.S., Canada, and Australia and used exclusively by the Barn Pros Racing MX Home Depot Yamaha team for the 2017 season. Go viral with the viral brand.
Absolutely. Whether it be a, uh, a mentor, a friend, or uh, someone to, to look up to. I think there's a lot of uh, people, uh, including myself, that uh, have the tenacity to continue after it uh, because they're the, pr- the proof of the pudding is in the eating and the fact that, uh, Ken, you've etched out uh, a, a spot for yourself within uh, the history of motocross. And uh, if anybody can can kind of learn from some of the things that you've done or aspire to, to, to kind of get to where you've got, to um it just like uh, the the you're you're that uh, that carrot that a lot of people are chasing and uh uh it's 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 encouraging to me to hear that you you yourself still learn some uh some new tricks every once in a while yeah it's with technology changing so quickly um it's fun i i really work hard at um to stay up with a lot of the the latest generations of cameras and um i'm a canon guy and professional photographers now, you either pick Canon or you pick Nikon. And it's fun. It's fun to be able to go out there and just see, you know, how that light sensitivity is, how fast the autofocus is, how the zone focus, how flashes um, are able to change. And um, you combine that with software programs like Lightroom and, and Affinity Photo and, and different things. And um, it's so fascinating at, at what people can do and how quickly they can do it. And, you know, the pressures on being a journalist now are incredible um, because there's so many websites and, and so many different things out there. Journalists, they have to go there, and immediately after the news is released, they've got to run back to their, their pickup truck or rental car. They've got to start downloading video, uploading video, editing it, you know, doing all that stuff. And um, this last week's a good example. KTM just, you know, announced their teams. They did a a thing, a uh, press intro at the brand new test track in Murrieta, California. Um, you know, they had all Troy Lee's guys there. They had Brock Tickle and, and Marvin Muskin. And immediately you start seeing the, the race um, right after the press intro to upload stuff. You know, you've got people trying to, you know, do the most they can. And, and it's a battle. Do you, do you go there and do it fast, you know, just to get something on the Internet? Or do you take your time and, and do something more thorough, but know that you're going to get slaughtered when it comes down to being the first one to break the story? So, you know, it's usually what people do is they do a teaser and then they do a more thorough follow-up and then they still got to do stuff for the magazine. And a, a journalist nowadays, I don't think has as much fun as we had um, before all the, all the, the internet and everything else, because we actually got to spend more time writing. You know, we go out on a, on a, um, a, get a magazine test bike and we would ride it for three, four weeks and have a bunch of people riding it before we would do um, a story on it and do a, a test. And nowadays you have tests being done the same day that the brand new bike came out and it's barely even broken in if it's even broken in at all. Oh, totally. You know, it, the news has to happen as fast as you can tweet it nowadays. And uh, literally, one of those explosions, one of those races that you were talking about is literally happening right now with uh, the new unveiling of the 2018.5 Factory Edition Husqvarna that uh, that literally just dropped about 20 minutes ago. And uh, so far, uh, more across action, uh, dirt, dirt riders uh, there, um, you name it, every every 
every photographer that's there, whether that's uh, like they're they're all getting those photos out, whether it be a good angle, whether it's good lighting, doesn't matter. Uh, with a short description of the bike, and and it's got to be out there because if you don't post it out there, you're you're left behind, and you're considered to be uh, you're you're not as relevant. And um, it, it's 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 interesting to see that race continue because yeah, everyone's clamoring to get that information out there as fast as they can because uh, if you're not the first someone else is going to get that story yeah no exactly and and that's that is a challenge is you know going out there and and knowing that you you are you pretty much have to be on call 24 hours a day now you know because of you know electronic media you know you have to be able to go out there and be able to upload and be able to produce and and stuff and that's you know that's the world we live in and, and that that changes everything from elections to you know um, the stock market. I mean, you look at you look at what happened with the stock market. That, you know, in the the last uh, ten years with the recession, a lot of that was because of instant news. During the Great Depression, they didn't have instant news. You know, they had they had to wait for it. Here, yeah, a lot of a lot of people in the United States would look at what's going on around the rest of the world, and when our stock markets open and see how crazy of a day it's going to be. So, the electronic journalism. I love it. I think it's it's fascinating. I'm actually glad I'm not living in that environment from a, from having to produce the content anymore because the the race to produce quality stuff fast is just so intense that I don't think you ever get a get a fun break. I think that you know I was in the last fun era of being a journalist, you know, in the sport of uh, motocross and off road. I totally agree. Uh, just uh, the the time the, of 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 your kind of like, I would say your prime, but like the when, when you when you really got to enjoy going to those races was uh, was a really special time within motocross. Uh, like uh, you had fin- fantastic. Uh, characters within the series. You had personalities within the series. You had that time to put some thought-provoking uh, a, a tag a, a headline on a thought-provoking provoking article, rather than uh, just having to tweet out as fast as you can the play-by-play of the race that's happening right in front of you. At the time, uh, if you weren't taking photos, if you were just a journalist, you could have taken the time to watch the race and and look, look at the body language of the riders and and take in the whole story, rather than having to to look down at your phone for two thirds of the uh, of the main event. Um, it it's really was a special time, and I'm glad that you were able to seize that opportunity. Not to say that what I do now isn't fun. I absolutely love when I can go to the races and do what I do. But uh, I, I I do look at your era uh, as uh, as to be honestly uh, kind of that golden era of, uh, of of both motocross and covering it as a journalist. That uh, must have been a special time. Well, from a journalist standpoint, we were able to go there. And they had closed pits, so you didn't have all the public inside of it. And and I do like having, you know, public having access. But we were able to go, you know, and walk up to riders in their box vans, you know. And I was also involved when, you know, semis started coming into the play. But you were able to develop a really good relationship with a lot of these guys. And um, I'm two years older than McGrath and Emig, And these are people that we used to spend the night at each other's houses, you know. And, and, they, and like... They knew my parents, and my parents weren't involved in motocross, but they knew them because they would come to my my parents' house, you know, when I was a kid before I bought my first place. And these were guys winning Supercross races, you know. But it was fun, and it was a really good access. Now you have so many people are shielded. Take a look at James Stewart. Nobody really knows what the heck the guy's doing. He's never made an official announcement, you know, from um, retirement. 
you know, there's all kinds of speculation. There's always stuff, but you know, he's, you know, everybody's so removed and tied, you know, from that, they just don't have those relationships. Now the riders have a bunch of handlers around them. They go in their motorhomes and journalists, you know, with the exception of a few people, you know, like a Davy Coombs or Don Maeda, the people really don't have a chance to be able to become friends with the guys and really yeah. know, them, you know, so they totally. get press releases and, and PR type stuff. And, you know, some of the people from, you know, their sponsors, like, you know, an, an Oakley or um, a Fox or whatever, their handlers will pass out or media people hand out, you know, snippets of info and, and different things, you know, and the other thing that's changed is that in my era, that you used to know secrets about the different writers. You knew stuff. You knew when they were hurt. You knew when they had something as a journalist, you know, on their bike that we we would see and we weren't supposed to see because we had access and we had a lot of trust. Nowadays, you have people with iPhones going out there and breaking news stories and then getting in a lot of trouble with the manufacturers because they weren't supposed to tell anybody. You know, and here they are on Instagram, you know, posting a, a picture of, um, you know, somebody with, you know, a new air fork or something like that. And the next thing you know, it's like World War Three. you know, because, you know, somebody let sensitive information out. And what a lot of people, you know, don't realize is the manufacturers make a lot of the journalists sign non-disclosure agreements, you know, and it's, it's big money. So like in my day, we would wind up getting photos sometimes six weeks before the public saw them because it wasn't the Internet and we had really poor lead times. So we would get stuff and we'd really have to be, you know, um, quiet about what we had seen and, and what we were looking at. And the manufacturers used to air freight bikes over for the magazines because there was such a big lead time for the magazine that we'd have to get them, we'd have to do the testing, and we'd have to write the um, the stories. And then four to six weeks later, it would actually be on the newsstand. You know, it was, it was um, sometimes really frustrating. And if you didn't, work really hard to get it out and you missed a deadline and your competitor wound up getting it on, there's a big difference in sales on the newsstand, you know? So it was that constant, you know, adrenaline rush and physical rush of trying to get the, the news out quickly. So anyway, I, I feel, I feel, I feel that I had the fun era of it. Although I think that there's some things that, that have a lot of advantages nowadays, but I think that the journalists themselves, they don't get to go out and, and, you know, have as much fun, you know, from a writing, I think their standpoint, you know, from that enthusiast standpoint, because, man, above everything else, I love to ride. I love to race. I love to go out there and participate in the sport. And nowadays, so many of the people, they don't have that. You know, they're good photographers or good writers or they're good, um, you know, videographers um, and they're good with creating content for the Internet. But they just don't have that, that experience that we had as, as journalists. Totally. And that's one of the things that I find is kind of a bit of a feather in my cap is that I still ride uh, regularly uh, as long as the, the old man winter uh, keeps me off the bike in the wintertime. But in the summertime, uh, I, I'm, all, I'm on the bike at least once a week. Uh, I go down to California. I bring my bike with me. Uh, most people uh, would take it as a work trip and you're not going to uh, spend too much time on two wheels. But I, I think it's important for, for me to have that throttle therapy to kind of remind myself why I do this. Because uh, all those times when I take photos at a Supercross and I'm up till 2 o'clock in the morning editing them so that I can put them on my website or uh, or on Instagram, 
Well, like the reason why I do it is because I love that the Decrocka throttle smell that two two stroke uh, premixed fuel and and just and and love it that I've the same way I've loved it since I was a kid and uh, that kind of that day one feeling uh, to me is what that kind of kept me in it and would keep me driving forward uh, far and away beside uh, all of the the being able to talk to some of my favorite racers or being able to be just to be that little bit closer to the sport that I love so much. And, uh, I think sure. that, um, I think that like, there's a couple of, and I, I've talked to a couple of videographers, my friend Kyle Cowling, uh, he did the spectrum series and, and that's the series that's gotten a lot of, uh, um, kind of eyebrows raised on how they kind of portray the sport and sometimes, a some, somewhat of a negative manner because they do ch- highlight some of the, the negative things of coming up in the sport and stuff like that. And like that, like all things, there are negatives to, 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 like there's a, there's a dark side to all sports, but, uh, the reality is, is that he hasn't, he's, he says he, like I talked to him, like when was the last time he wrote He's like, oh man, I haven't been on a bike since 2010 or something like that, or 2008. And I'm like, 2008? Like, 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 like the, same, this is the same guy that's like complaining about about uh, the the motocross industry or well, it's not fun. I was like, yeah, it's not fun when you're not riding the bike. Like, you know, what I mean? it, it it feels like a job when you're when you're not able to to go out there, twist the throttle, and uh, and feel the rush of adrenaline to go jump something maybe you didn't think you were going to jump all day long, or uh, hit a corner just right. Um, it's the theater of the mind that keeps you going in this sport. Uh, which, like, if if you're going to pursue anything with passion, um, you have to continue to rekindle that because otherwise you'll just get stale. I agree. <clears throat> I live in Corona, California. And I live about 20 minutes away from KTM. I live about 10 minutes away from all the other factory supercross tracks. So on my way to, to work at Pole Position Raceway, I passed the Kawasaki track. And like this last week, they've been doing media introductions and their photos for all their autograph sheets and, and um, you know, for all the apparel companies and tire companies and stuff. So I drive by and I, I literally look at, you know, the top riders in the world, you know, you've got, um, McGrath over there still not racing, but still doing photos because he's a Kawasaki ambassador, but you know, Tomac and then, um, Josh Grant, you know, and then you've got journalists like this morning, I ran into Dennis Stapleton at Starbucks. Um, and I ran into Don Maeda on a regular basis, just in my, my neighborhood, you know, because, you know, Corona, California is still where a lot of the, the magic happens for the sport. But, um, you know, I think journalists are driving all over Southern California, you know, on a constant basis doing things. And in in our era, we only had 12 deadlines, 12 times a year that we had to get magazines out. Now, that's bad from a, a reader standpoint. That's why you have this podcast. But from a, from a work standpoint, you know, we knew we had hard deadlines. Nowadays, the deadlines are invisible. It's just a race. It's a race to get the information out. And it's a race to get stuff Is it is it better to get it quicker? Is it better to do something more thorough? You know, and, and you can look at, you know, who's quality and, and who's not. And, and um, it's interesting when you look at the, you know, the different things out there nowadays, just like regular mainstream journalism and fake news and everything else, you know, now it comes down to credibility. What journalists, you know, photographers and different people have the most credibility out there. And, um, you know, it's, it's not always that easy to see, is it? No, absolutely it isn't. And, uh, the, just the hearing you speak gets me thinking, uh, of the kind of like the source of a lot of different issues that, that, uh, the sport handles is the fact that, um, the, like, now we have such a saturation with information 
the, with the fact that you can get uh, up to date, up to the minute, up to the second um, information on Twitter, social media, uh, on websites that that uh, are diligent about uh, updating. That uh, it, it, there's so much pressure on on uh, media outlets to get stuff out there that uh, like it, it just seems it seems like um, as soon as some information goes off that news feed, it's almost forgotten. Like you have to you have to be so much busier than you used to be, uh, and and I don't think that the the quality can stay at that same level. It's not sustainable. Uh, and then on top of that, you'd mentioned like how how much more of an influx of guys like myself going to the races with a with a podcast and. Instead of um, instead of two or three journalists asking for a post race interview from James Stewart, now James Stewart's being asked for a post race interview from fifteen different guys that are all standing there with uh, with iPhones out, waiting to get that uh, that scoop that they're probably not going to get even uh, even if they do ask them the right questions. Um, so, uh, like another reason why the the athletes are so closed up is because like they don't have time to get close to all of us. There's there's ten of us. They don't, they don't like, and, and when I was doing it before all the, all the digital um, stuff came about, literally we would go right after the races, guys are still in their gear and we would be in the box vans, you know, why they were changing and stuff and we'd be interviewing them. And then 30 minutes later, they would go to the press conference with the regular local newspapers and TV. Um, nowadays they go right to the press conference where all the journalists meet them. They're still in their gear. You know, they got to make sure they have their monster energy caps on and, you know, their, you know, their Scott or Oakley goggles, you know, 100%, you know, turned in the right way. You know, they've got their handlers on, you know, they bring their helmets, set them on the table. Everything's a presentation now. Everything is sterilized and all the writers go through regular media training where you don't have anybody that's really outspoken. You don't have anybody like a Bob Hanna, you know, out there who's just going to tell you flat out what it is and stuff. Now everything's politically correct, and when they're talking about it, you know, it's like I like to thank my Monster Energy Pro Circuit, you know, um, you know, hundred percent, you know, Dunlop tire, da 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 da. It's it's that. It's like NASCAR and, and stuff in, in a lot of ways, you know, and that and that takes away, uh, you know, a lot of the fun. Everybody's so worried about being penalized for for doing something wrong or saying something wrong, and even even it's one of the reasons that a lot of the writers, you know, aren't that accessible is because other people take advantage of it and will, you know, try to record something that they're not supposed to record. And then the writer gets in a lot of trouble from the sponsors. And, you know, people think it's it's kind of funny. But, you know, at the end of the day, there's a business and there's people's livelihood. And, you know, if you're going to build up a trust, you know, with somebody, you've got to maintain that level of trust. You know, everybody has secrets. Everybody has things that, you know, they want to know or don't want to know. I mean, today, Chad Reed was posting some photos of frames on Instagram you know, and kind of teasing that he's signing, you know, some other deals and he's going to be able to announce his sponsors and they're white frames, you know, most likely power coded. So um, that's making people wonder, you know, people are thinking, all right, is he going to be in Husky? Is he going to be on this and that? It's kind of fun, you know, in some ways, but in other ways, you know, it makes it difficult for these guys because there's somebody in the shipping department someplace that saw something that's going somewhere, you know, to Chad Reed and they start making assumptions and, a lot of time, man, these guys have to go through so much work, you know, to to mask it and have it go to their buddy's house or whatever or different names, you know, just just so somebody doesn't see it. I mean, you think about, you know, an average racer who has 20 sponsors and 20, that's really nothing when you look at, you know, apparel, watches, boots, goggles, 
you know, plastic sponsors, um, see cover sponsors, graphics, you know, um, clutches, Henson, you know, and stuff. And if you look at that, there may be a hundred people or so that are involved in shipping products or getting it to a guy like Chad Reed. A hundred because somebody's doing billing, right? Somebody's taking the orders. Somebody has to process the orders. There's a UPS truck driver, right? You know, or FedEx, you know, that's going to get it. And it's hard to keep secrets, you know, nowadays. The lanes that these guys have to go to, you know, it's huge because in a lot of cases, the riders, let's say their contract doesn't end until the last national year. If they've already signed a deal, you know, in August and the racing series doesn't end until September, man, they get a lot of trouble if it's announced, you know, that they, they're switching teams or something like that. So it's, um, it's big, it's big business. It's, it's big PR business, you know, for everything. For sure. And like, I just look at the situation that, uh, Ken Roxon was in, uh, 2016 when just about every single, like the, the worst kept secret in the, in the pits was sure. that he was going to Honda and there were, people were talking about that in, in March and he still had to ride for another six, seven months with Suzuki. And like that, that puts, that, that puts Ken in a bad position. It puts in Suzuki in a bad position. Like the whole team, like, yeah, they're, we're winning the championship, but, uh, you look around and you're like, yeah, we, we know we're losing them. Everybody knows we're losing them. And, uh, it kind of really tainted that for, for the, for RCH. I kind of feel bad for those guys at that point because they, like, they, it's kind of like, yeah, we're, uh, we're, we're doing so well, but we're also, we're, we're losing our golden goose in the process. So uh, um, it's it's kind of like everything's a little bit bittersweet. Well, if I remember correctly, a lot of that stuff started with Ken Roxon's dad doing an interview yes. and just spilling his guts, you know. And from that standpoint, you know, not understanding, you know, how how the the business side of the sport works, you know, for good or for bad. You know, I think his dad was talking about poor performance of bikes and all kinds of other stuff, and man, it really hit hard. And I think Ken had to do. And, and I believe this, this is how the story went, but Ken had to do a lot of damage control at that. And part of the thing was he had to go and face the very people that his dad was, was slamming, you know? Okay. So anyway, I never heard any of that firsthand and, and, but that's the way that I understand, you know, the, the stuff based on what I read at the time. So anyway, I think that a lot of people, you know, learn from that, that thing of, man, if you're going to ride with somebody, keep your keep your keep your your challenges you know where you could address it with the right people who could fix it instead of airing everything out public um because that relationship obviously deteriorated and then he went to honda and, and the rest is history no kidding including his arm um now uh, i got a couple of questions for you before i let you go and i know we're, we still got to talk about a little bit about uh um your 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 current position now with pole position but um Getting a cover photo and, uh, and like excluding Simon Cubby from this conversation because, uh, by default, he just got, get every, every single, uh, cover for forever with, uh, Racer X. Uh, those, those were easy wins on his part. But when you, when you got your first, um, first cover, with with Dirt Rider, was that like main event win? Is that like Supercross championship for a photographer? It felt really good. Um, I'd worked at Cycle News, and I had um, we also had a jet ski publication, a personal watercraft um, illustrated at the time. So I'd shot covers before, and I'd shot some stuff for international magazines. But man, it felt really good, and you know, to be able to to do that, you know, especially as a 
as a kid growing up with the magazines and having posters and stuff all over, you know, your, your bedroom, you know, to be able to see something that you did and you created and, um, it felt good. And that was a, that was the era where the writers themselves knew all the journalists and they would call you and they would say, Hey, I'm in town. Do you want to go out on a photo shoot? I'm going to be doing something. And you had this cool relationship with them. So they all knew who the photographers were and they all knew that, man, if you buddied up with a photographer, you had a good chance of getting on a magazine. And, and, you know, a lot of those relationships, you know, that that's what actually helped us build pole position raceway is things that I, I did with the magazine. So those, those things having having that yes to answer your question that that to me was one of the coolest things that I ever could have done or accomplished. No kidding, I, I can't even imagine to see uh, one of your photos uh, on the newsstands, people picking it up, and, and honestly, a lot of people pick up a magazine because the photo on the front looks cool, and, uh, and 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 it's it's just that 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 feeling is is kind of a one of a kind within the realm of photography, and uh, I feel um, honestly, I feel bad that there's not going to be another. Uh, Dirt Rider cover uh, that's gonna that, that anyone's gonna get an opportunity to shoot, and uh, obviously Cody Webb being the uh, the the final the final person to, to grace the cover of this last uh, this last month's issue. Uh, Dirt Rider making a statement that they were gonna continue as an online publication, but no longer as a print publication. Um, wh- what were your feelings when you first uh, found out that that uh, something that was your baby, your pride and joy, uh, as far as the paper version is no is gonna be no longer. I kind of knew it was coming, you know, because you could see how small their their editorial and advertising package got. I mean, at the heyday, we were roughly 250 pages during the the December holiday issue. And, you know, the less less for a while, you know, the magazines were 60 something pages. So, you know, it's, it's just tough. It's the economics of the of the of the business. But to see a magazine that was thriving that was at the top of the game and that company had gone through or dirt rider had, I think five different owners over the last, last 15 or 20 years. It had gone through so many different sales and, and stuff that um, it was, it was interesting just to see where it would end up and, and you know, if the people are going to be able to be creative enough to be able to keep it because you know, the, in most cases there's only so many different um competitors that could thrive, you know, off the the amount of advertising dollars that are in there. So now it looks like those advertising dollars are going to wind up um, either going, you know, partially to online or a bunch of print stuff between Transworld, Racer X, um, Motocross Action, and, and Dirt Bike. So, you know, it's just, it's it's one more that's gone away. And And if you look at it, there's so many different newspapers and magazines, you know, in the last 10 years that have gone out of business. There used to be tons of regional newspapers, you know, and they, and they just, they, they just evaporated. And, um, you know, so I have, I have mixed feelings. I also, I love the fact that I can, after this interview, I can hop on Instagram and, and go on racer X, you know, online and, and trans world. And I can learn a lot about what's going on today with the, with the world of, of our sport. Right. You know, you're, you're up to speed. Yeah. I don't have to wait six, six weeks like the magazine. So it's, Definitely bittersweet, and I, I man, I, I, I enjoyed when it was around, and I always felt that I was, I was part of the crew that helped make that, you know, that magazine such a staple for so many years. 
Absolutely. And I think that uh, people continue to look back on it with uh, fondly. And uh, the reality is, is that uh, there are only, like the advertising budgets are what they are. And uh, with, with, with more platforms uh, going to, to internet. And if, if you're going to start paying for uh, like uh, advertising on social media, uh, then you're like, you, you, you're, you're, it's not like you're going to grow that budget. The, the budget is going to get divvied up more. And uh, um, I think that uh, it just got to the point where uh, the, the logistics of it and, and the, fina- the, the, the dollars and cents of it, just stop making sense, and it's it's really too bad. But uh, um, uh, rest assured, man, for, for people will uh, continue to think uh, of Dirt Rider and, and Ken fought. And now with uh, with moving forward, anytime that be th- honestly, this is the funniest thing. When I think of even there's a, there's a local indoor karting place, I, I think of that place, and I think of you. And I don't know why that is, but I do. <laughs> that's 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 pretty cool. Yeah, we. After I left um, Dirt Rider, um, I was working on a, a project um, for just one car track, Pole Position Raceway in Corona, California. And um, over time, we managed to build 14 of them around the United States and um, never would have thought that that's how, how things, you know, my career path would take me. But um, when I was working at Dirt Rider, my round trip commute was 159 miles a day. And I'd go in about nine times a month. And... And I've got got a wife, and that we just celebrated our 25th wedding anniversary. Two kids, so I needed I, I needed to make a change, and you know we had had the opportunity to with a bunch of people from the motorcycle industry, like Jeremy McGrath and Chad Jeff Fox from Parts Unlimited, and um, anyway, uh, Rich Winkler built Supercross tracks, and Jamie Little, who's a pair porter, we we used our friends, and um, you know together we we came up with the idea of doing a kart track, and you know, it's 12 mile. The first one was 12 miles away from a house, you know, so it, it was a, a life changing thing. And, and at the time I thought that I wasn't going to have to do so much traveling. I'd traveled about at the time when I left a rider, almost a million miles of American airlines alone. And that's all over the world. So anyway, I wanted to be around home more. And, and the ironic thing is with the car tracks and stuff, I still travel a lot. So but it's, it's, it's been a lot of fun. And I, I think that's a cool story, you know, that you think of, think of, uh, me, even though, uh, I have nothing to do with that car track by you. Yeah, seriously. It, it just seems like, uh, um, you've become synonymous, uh, just with that, uh, that, that brand of entertainment and, and just that, uh, a high quality of, uh, of, of a racetrack like that. And, uh, I'm like, I, I've been to a pole position in, uh, in California. Uh, yours pay, uh, is, is miles ahead of, uh, of this rather modest location here in, in Winnipeg. Uh, it's, uh, um, it's called speed world locally. Uh, and I love going there, but, uh, I think it's, it's like people love to, uh, uh, to experience, the the feeling of racing within uh, in the friendly confines of a of, of a go kart track like that, and I, honestly, I, I take to into account the genuine smile across the face of one Jeremy McGrath when he's uh, when he's attending one of those events because the guy like he, it's literally he he genuinely enjoys going. It seems to have a lot of fun there, and if if MC has a lot of fun doing it, it must be a lot of fun because uh, I, I'm sure you had a, fr- a center stage for it all. But that guy uh, knows how to have some fun. Oh yeah, no, it's 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 great. What's what's fun is because we're we're located in Corona this time of the year, we have things happening all the time. Like 
like right now, um, while you and I were on the phone, um, Ryder LaRocco, Michael LaRocco's son, um, was texting me about taking a group over to the Corona track tomorrow um, from Factory Connection, you know, from the race team. And we had a bunch of guys from KTM at our Murrieta, California track yesterday. Um, I've actually had it where I had a guy from Australia come over here. We went to our Murrieta kart track, and he's a big Supercross guy, and he ran into Chad Reed. We go 33 miles to our Corona track, and James Stewart's racing down there, and the guy just looks at me and goes, are you kidding me? He goes, I, I'm a guy from Australia. I never see any of these guys. And I see two of the guys who are battling for the championship at the same basic hour at your place. And I said, it's just because of geography. We're in Southern California. This is the hub. You just happen to be in, in here in January. And, you know, the time of the year, all the races for Supercross are on the West Coast. So geography-wise, it just works out, you know, ideal. And um, I think I think that's that's one of the, the secrets that really helped us is, you know, we're our motto is we're built by racers for racers. And, you know, we have a lot of real people involved. And, you know, you talk about McGrath smiling and, and being competitive. Yeah, he always has a smile on his face whenever he's, you know, um, piloting something with two or four wheels, no doubt. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. And uh, honestly, yeah, I think you're right. I think you'd probably be uh, have better luck running into and having a meaningful conversation with uh, a pro motocross racer at a, at a Chipotle in Murrieta than you would at a local dealer signing uh, in, in January. But uh, yeah, like it's just it's part of that culture. Uh, the the whole industry is down there for six to eight weeks at a time, and uh, it, it's it really is something to, to 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 behold. And you're right in the thick of things. And when those guys need to blow off some steam and uh, and do something in the in the four wheel uh, variety. They bring their uh, their helmets down, or or or, or borrow one from uh, one you guys provide, and uh, and they they uh, they go uh, uh, get the lead out a little bit. Absolutely, awesome man. Well, uh, so what's 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 on the horizon for for Ken Fought uh, before I let you go? And uh, I'm taking a, uh, a ton of your time already this evening, and I really appreciate it. No, it's it's been a lot of fun, and and for me, it, my focus is on pole position raceway. And, you know, I've been, I've been doing that for 12 years. I absolutely love it. And, um, you know, I still enjoy being involved in the, in the sport. I'll still do, you know, photos every once in a while for magazines or interviews or different things. And, and I absolutely love it. And I still am, I'm lucky enough because of geography and our business that I'm able to, you know, see these guys like Savachi and, and, um, you know, McGrath and, and stuff on a regular basis, you know, and, and, and to me, that's what life is about, you know, going out there and, and making it where you have a reason to get up every day to be able to go out and enjoy it. And the one thing I like about, you know, being in the entertainment business is you're able to make people smile and laugh, you know, and it's fun when you wake up in the morning and know that, hey, today, let's let's see who we can entertain. There it is, man. You've been doing so for a long period of time. Before I let you go, five quick questions uh, brought to you by Vertex Pistons. Are you ready? Yep. First question, who during your, uh, when you were focused on photography, who was the easiest athlete to get a good photo of? Jeremy McGrath. I mean, the guy was just, yeah, so, so easy. And, and I, I knew, I met Jeremy when he was, he was 14 and it was a type of, of thing where, 
where I lived in Southern California, where he lived, him and his dad would drive to my parents' house, pick me up, and we'd go to like the Rose Bowl and watch races. And we'd go race at Mammoth. Um, he would race my YZ490, you know, up there and stuff. So we had that really good relationship. And he was so smooth and he just had this ability to go find really cool obstacles. And he had such great style and still has great style that it was, it was easy to, you know, to be able to, to photograph. Well, there you go. And, uh, so what, uh, what current motorcycle do you have in your garage? Do you currently own a motorcycle? And if you don't have a current model, what would you purchase if you had to? No, I do. I actually have a KTM 500 EXC and I absolutely love it. I, um, where I live, being able to um, ride dual sport stuff is incredible. I could ride right out of my, my garage and, um, I can, I can be in, in, um, really good off road, you know, riding within about 10 minutes. So, um, that's it. That's, that's what I love right now. Where in the, uh, you, you, you've put knobby tires and just about all over this, uh, this globe that we live on. Uh, if you could have one day at uh, your favorite riding spot, whereabouts is that? Uh, that would be in Kauai, Hawaii. There it is, Hawaii. Hand, hands down, and and I just flew there three weeks ago just to go riding with a guy, Jeff Guest, who I've ridden with with uh, Jeremy McGrath and um, Greg Albertine. I was able to um, borrow a, a KTM and just had an absolute blast. And um, it's it's where I, I spend my own money to go riding. And I live in Southern California, and there's all kinds of stuff out here, but the riding over there, the scenery. I mean, I was able to ride on the beach. You know, and yeah, do so legally, and yeah, and and we were able to ride on um, the course that they use for the sixty third annual sixty third. Think about that sixty third Labor Day Heron Hound, and it's in all kinds of um, tight, twisty um, trees and bushes and stuff. You know, in volcanic areas, and um, just gorgeous. And it's it's a real life experience. So I'm all about experiences now at this age. There you go. Uh, of, of the current racers currently racing professionally in, uh, 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 you could play pick anywhere in the world, but, um, who of the current racers would you like to have a private photo day with? Probably Chad Reed. I have a lot of respect for him. And I think that, you know, he's, he's a guy who's lasted. I mean, the guy's out there, you know, and he's put his own money out there to be able to do it. And, um, even though I'm not an active, you know, journalist on a week to week basis, I still go to a bunch of races. And I was in Dallas the year that he wound up blowing apart his knee. And I was just blown away at how fast the guy is and how aggressive and, and determined and stuff. And I, I think it would it'd be an awful lot of fun. I think that, um, right now he's probably the most intriguing rider for me because, you know, I expect a Marvin Muskin, you know, to be up there and, and Eli Tomac for this year. Um, but, you know, I, I think that, you know, Chad's days are also limited, you know, so I think that the opportunities that we're going to do, you know, are, are going to be fewer and far between to be able to, to make that happen. Um, plus, I, I like him. You know, he's he's an investor in pole position raceway, and I've got a, got a lot of respect for him. Absolutely. Nothing, nothing but respect for a guy who's gone racing on his own dime more than once and done so successfully. Wish him the best of luck in 2018 and maybe hopefully see him at a pole position, uh, in January. Uh, last question for you before I let you go, my friend. Where can people find more information on a, on a location nearest them at pole position and, uh, and, and give people a little bit of an idea what, what they might experience once they get there? 
best thing is uh, the internet at polepositionraceway.com. They can look at all of our different locations around the United States and um, go out there and have some fun. It's um, it's pretty unique. We've been on 200 different reality TV shows. We're on um, Real Housewives of New Jersey last week. We've hosted the Miss America pageant three times. We've been on Good Morning America, and um, it's it's definitely different than I ever envisioned it. You know, when we first started out on this, but um, it's it's turned out to be an awful lot of fun, and I'm I'm proud of of the brand that we've been able to create. Well, there you go. Please do go check that out, guys. I really appreciate everyone who is listening tonight. And I appreciate you, Ken, for giving me the time to uh, go down memory lane, pick your brain about uh, media, both new and old. And uh, and, and I, I knew you'd be a great, a great guest, and I've really enjoyed this conversation, my friend. Hey, I really appreciate your time, Brad. It was a lot of fun. Hey, absolutely. You, you, uh, you have a great rest of your evening. Do not hang up just yet, but for podcast sake, we're going to cut it off right there.